We are keeping democracy alive. Bert Cohen here, taking part in it. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And our guest today knows who that last voice was, I'm sure. One of my favorite presidents, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who cared a lot about the American people. He was a Democrat, a real solid Democrat. Well, 2016 was... Not the greatest year for Democrats, shall we say. We got, uh, it was really, really tough, and we got Trump out of the deal. It's just unbelievable. Can Democrats pick it up again? Uh, can we make something, uh, make some lemonade out of this lemon that we were handed? What will it take? Will the people be there for the Democrats? Are they too, you know, turned off by what happened within the Democratic nominating process Can we win them back? I hear a lot of people saying, "Eh, you know, I've had it with the Democrats. They're too corporate uh, aligned. I'm not going back there. I am. I've long said that, you know, third party Republicans love it. Hey, if that's what you want to do, go right ahead. But the Democratic Party, I think, is up for grabs. And I hope you'll listen to this. And I'm going to focus on millennials here because they were a huge part of the Bernie Sanders movement, and they're, you know, let's face it, they're the future. Uh, can we win them back? Well, I'm very pleased to have with us an old friend, Raymond Buckley. Raymond, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive and for all you do to keep democracy alive. Well, thank you, old friend. Yes, indeed. Well, it's true. A little bit of history about Ray Buckley. I'd, I'd say, you know, this shouldn't give him a swelled head, but it's too late. <laughs> Raymond Buckley, he was running very recently for state uh, for US National Democratic Party chair came in very close there uh, it was a tough race they had you had how many debates among the eight of you 12 12 debates my goodness mm-hmm. the, the one I saw was on uh, uh, I guess it was C-SPAN toward the end and a lot of good people running some really good people from whom we hope to see a lot in the future But in case you don't know Ray Buckley, hey, it could happen. Raymond Buckley was elected chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party in March of 2007, 10 years. Prior to serving as chair, he served as the party's first vice chair and executive director. His professional political involvement began when he was an organizer for Jimmy Carter's campaign for president in 1976. You were young in then, that's for sure. You were working for Fred Harris, I, if I recall. That's right, Fred Harris. Uh, well, he didn't win. <laughs> but I think, <laughs> he, once again, he was ahead of his time. I, I, it's tough being ahead of your time over and over again, I'll tell you. 
But since 76, uh, Ray has been involved with each presidential campaign in New Hampshire, as well as campaigns for governor, U.S. House, U.S. Senate, and the New Hampshire State Senate. Uh, a place w- was I really involved in a U.S. House race? Uh, was that 30 years ago, Burton? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it was 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that was my House race. I didn't win the nomination, but we came in second out of four. That was uh, a learning experience, shall we say. But we did all right. It wasn't bad. If we knew then what we know now, you would have won hands down. No, we still would have lost. <laughs> no, we won the primary. Well. That's probably true, actually. We, we have the future to talk about here. That was 30 years ago. Unbelievable. But during the uh, 06 election cycle, he was uh, election cycle. He was the executive director for the New Hampshire Senate Democratic Caucus, which helps a lot. 1986, he was elected to the State House from Manchester, where he served eight terms. Manch Vegas, I guess it's really called. In January 2009, uh, Raymond Buckley was elected president of the Association of State Democratic Chairs. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. The National Association of State Democratic Chairs, he was reelected to that position in 2011 and again in 2013. In his role as ASDC president, he also serves as vice chair for the Democratic National Committee. So, yeah, he's seen a lot. Ray Buckley has also serves in the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee, Ooh, that must get uh, interesting sometimes. And he is a national leader in the LGBT community. Chairman Buckley serves in the DNC's LGBT caucus as well as the National Stonewall Democrats. Chairman Ray Buckley is the first openly gay politician to serve as president of the Association of State Democratic Chairs and as a vice chair of the DNC. That's a lot there, and he's still going like the Energizer Bunny. I don't know where you get it, (laughs) but we thank you for your work. You've spoken to many diverse crowds, and when I've heard you present your clear statement of what it means to be a Democrat, I've always found it inspiring. In the 2016 election, many Americans knew what Trump stood for himself, but they were also less sure about the agenda as specified or not specified by our party nominee, Hillary Clinton. In this discussion, we'll need to do a little bit of a postmortem and examine why we lost and why you think we can win again in 2018. So here's, here's your opening. What do we stand for that you think most Americans really do connect with? And why did we lose in 2016, and why do you think we can win again in 2018? Well, um, there, uh, during my candidacy uh, for the four months of, of DNC chair, um, I, I uh, talked about three uh, main reasons why um, Donald Trump is president and, and we failed. Uh, the first is the nominating process and the failure of that. Uh, the second is organizational and the failure to support grassroots uh, organizing. And third uh, is, is really the message. Um, so if, if you, uh, I can talk, what, can we oh, right talk ahead. about the nominating process first? Sure, yeah, because that, that nominating process, that was a big deal. That was a real, go ahead. <clears throat> and you were right there in the thick of it. You got to know Debbie Wasserman Schultz, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Thanks, Bert. Um, um, so uh, the the real failure uh, by um, those on the national level was to uh, appreciate um, the the very real anxieties and concerns that people had throughout that process. Uh, first off, uh, the the debate schedule, uh, and and in my uh, 
uh, campaign for DNC chair, I said that uh, I don't think the chair of the DNC should be authorized to arbitrarily on their own set the schedule for the presidential debates uh, or determine who gets to participate in it, where they are, or, the, or any of that. Uh, and that that should be rightfully uh, the full membership of the executive committee of the DNC, which is uh, well over 40 members from all walks of life and in all corners of the country. You've got from the uh, the uh, chair of the DNC Youth Council to the to the chair of the DNC Seniors Council and and uh, and a very amazing cross section of of uh, people on that. That's where uh, that decision should be when it when it comes to the, uh, the debates. Uh, the second part is the the fundraising agreements. Um, never again should the DNC ever uh, sign on to a fundraising a joint fundraising agreement uh, w- while we're in a primary. Um, uh, we were told one thing: mm. uh, the state parties were in the DNC, uh, and a lot of us uh, went out there and repeated what we were told, believing that it was true, uh, only to find out that it was not true, uh, and uh, that um, it, it clearly. Uh, was a line that should never have been crossed and uh, should never be done again. And I think that's critically uh, important. Well, just quickly, what uh, do, what did that mean? What was I, I think people might be getting lost in the in the reads on this one. What, what was that all about? Well, there was the the DNC along with 38 states signed a joint fundraising agreement with Hillary for America. Uh, we were told is that it just makes it easier to raise um, an enormous amount of money for the general election. If you can get, and, and we all knew that, that when you get somebody of, of wealth, um, getting a check out of them is, is, is very difficult sometimes. So once you've got them writing one check, um, it's easier to get them to write a massive check uh, than go back to them six months later for another check. Uh, the amount of time and effort it takes to get that second check out of them. Not that they don't have the money. It's just they're busy. They've got other things going on in their life. And it's just uh, an enormous sure. effort. Yeah. Uh, so we were told... That if uh, somebody, if if the DNC, uh, our state party, and Hillary for America all created a joint fundraising account, that they could then raise uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars instead of just uh, you know twenty thousand dollars or whatever the number happened to have been, um, and and that the money would be used for the general election, right? Uh, and it, and it would be uh, used in our states and. So we're looking at going, well, this is money that we never would have been able to have had access to. Uh, and it would, uh, and so it's essentially free money for state parties. And my whole argument was, why would I ever say no uh, to money uh, coming into the state party that I didn't have to, you know, uh, work overtime trying to get it? It's going to help elect my state rep candidates and state senate and congressional candidates and, and, and the entire ticket. This is fantastic. Um, well, you know, it really wasn't that, and it went into a, in, it wasn't into a, a separate box. Uh, it was really more of a, went into a soup, uh, <laughs> uh, where you know that uh, it got ladled out as needed uh, by uh, Hillary's campaign, and I, I, I think that uh, either uh, we weren't listening uh, correctly, or it wasn't explained to us correctly. But either way, we should never ever uh, do it again. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Raymond Buckley, one of the uh, major candidates for chair of the Democratic National Committee. Did very well. Ended up endorsing uh, Keith Ellison. But we'll talk about that later. But money, you know, let's face it. You got to raise a ton of money. I don't know how much this general election campaign uh, spent. but you, Over a billion. Over a billion dollars. 
I lose track of that. Well, I was let me talk a little bit about a couple of other uh, things about the nominating process that cause for concern. All right, thank you. Um, there, there, there was a great concern about the caucuses. Uh, we've got to make the caucuses similar. Uh, what, what the the problem that we have is that somebody can read online about one person's experience in a caucus in their state, and they can be in the very next state that also has a caucus, and their experience is completely different. Some caucuses, you just simply walk in, vote, and walk out. Mm. Others, it's a multi-tiered, takes, uh, takes an entire day. Uh, then you have to come back and you have to fall. It, it is yeah. a very highly complicated. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, when, something, when something is called a caucus, that it's the same caucus in every state so that people can share that information and make sure, and that we've got to make a better effort to make sure that everybody can participate, whether or not they can physically attend that caucus or not. Um, the percentage of individuals that actually participate in the caucuses in the caucus states is extraordinarily much uh, lower than those who participate in a primary by, by huge percentages. Um, but there's an argument of that it helps organize um, parties by having these caucuses, you get a lot more data and a lot more information from them uh, from participating it. Um, uh, then, then comes the issue of the superdelegates, and, oh, and yes. we, you know, never really addressed that in in, uh, in a manner that um, uh, I think was very effective. Uh, and uh, uh, talk about getting into the weeds. This gets into the weeds a little, uh, but. Um, the problem people had were not necessarily that superdelegates existed. It was that what was the end result, right. and that the end result should be that the state delegations reflect the vote of the people. Uh, and when by the time we were already midstream in uh, 2016, uh, when people were calling for change, and it, there was no process to do that, there was no ability to do that. But I think and I hope that uh, people heard the concerns, and I'm supporting uh, uh, the concept of that, uh, that the, at the end result is that the state delegations must reflect the vote of the people. Oh, wow. And mm. so in, in New Hampshire, uh, what would have happened is that uh, Hillary would have received four less delegates, Bernie would have received four additional delegates, he would have received 60% of the vote, she would have received 40% 40 of the vote, and um, that those who uh, were automatic delegates or superdelegates, as the media like to call them, um, could to, could make a choice. Um, they could either uh, go into into line. They would be first picked for Hillary because they were they were all for Hillary uh, prior to the primary, right. um, or they could simply uh, give up that slot and still get a floor pass and a seat on the floor of the convention. Um, for me, I would have taken that route. Um, I had to choose the night, you know, the day of the vote, but I, I really would have preferred not having to take that, yeah, uh, to, to choose between voting for, between Hillary and Bernie. And, and uh, so it ended up being a 50-50 tie despite, uh, the vote. But so it, it, as I said, it gets into the weeds, a little more complicated yeah. than that, but the end result is, uh, that, that, uh, that the, every state would reflect the actual vote. Um, that's the nominating process that I think uh, we need to, to take a look at, whether it's the debates, the fundraising agreements, um, how the caucuses are run or con and conducted, uh, and uh, the, you know, the superdelegates. Um, the, the second thing that we have a problem is if, if, if we had, uh, if, the, if the Democratic National Committee had continued funding uh, the 50-state strategy at the same level, uh, that we had under uh, Howard Dean, which was roughly about a quarter of a million dollars per state party uh, across the country in 2008. So that was in 2006, 2007, 2008. 
um, uh, we would have uh, elected Hillary Clinton president. Uh, because you look at the closeness in so many of those states, whether it was Wisconsin uh, or uh, some of the other, Michigan or some of the other states, if we'd had a vibrant grassroots operation going on, uh, it would have been enough to uh, pull her over the victory line. Uh, the reality is that uh, the uh, grassroots, the, uh, the state parties and the grassroots were um, were essentially cut off. Uh, we went from getting roughly a quarter of a million a year uh, to less than $100,000 uh, a year, uh, and that varied uh, depending on, on uh, the election cycle. And so uh, in reinvesting back into the grassroots and stop spending uh, the, the millions upon millions upon millions that we spend on television ads right. and actually hiring people to work their own communities, I think, is a much uh, better way. So I think cleaning up the nominating process, uh, respecting the fact that there were grave concerns and we should have been able to address that properly so that people didn't then uh, feel so uh, disenchanted with the party that they wanted to either vote for Jill Stein or write in Bernie or simply not vote at all. Yeah. Uh, second, uh, the organization investing in the grassroots and the state parties. And then the third is the message. And um, not only would it be more effective if we had local uh, organizers talking uh, to people and having neighbors talking to neighbors, but what is it that we're talking about? And um, I, I don't know uh, how many times uh, the people of the United States need to watch that same commercial over and over with uh, Donald Trump uh, dropping the F word. Um, but I, I don't think that that was an effective way. I think that they got it. They understood that he, you know, is, is a person who um, is offensive. Um, but on the other hand, he was talking about their real concerns about jobs. And the fact is, is that Hillary Clinton uh, actually had a better uh, proposal for working class Americans. But we never promoted that. Instead, it was all about how offensive that Donald Trump was. And we have to talk about real concerns, real people, if we're ever going to expect them to come back and vote for us. Boy, I think That's my have, quick speech. Oh, no, we got lots of time here, actually. I want to really get into it, because I remember in 2004, when I was for uh, John Kerry, I, I wasn't sure what his message was, I, only that he was not Bush. Bush was very unpopular mm -hmm. at that time. But being not Bush was not good enough. I wonder, you know, the, the identity of the party. Hillary must have been, I can imagine, in a very, very difficult position because, I mean, this is, in fact, a big tent party. It always has been. I mean, there's certain specifics that we stand for that many people think perhaps we kind of turned away from, you know, standing up for working people and, and lots of things like that. But the identity, w w did you perceive that the Hillary campaign in shaping the candidate was having some difficulty because they got a lot of their money. I mean, she did a lot of big ticket fundraisers and you have to raise a ton of money. And, but there's also the, the grassroots of the party. Was there some uh, you know, concern about you know, how centrist she had to appear? And I wonder how in being too centrist, you sort of lose people don't know what the heck you're for. How do you think that played into it? I mean, go ahead. Well, you know, I think that uh, that there's a, you know, a million things that you can point at of, you know, because with a race that that was that close and the fact she received three million more votes than, than Donald Trump, just they weren't in the right places. Um, and, you know, there are many ways of, of having addressed that. Um, you referenced John Kerry's campaign, and you know John Kerry uh, after the 2004 election uh, did an interview, and he said if he had to do it over again, he would not listen to his consultants. Hmm. Um, 
I dare hmm. say that that's what Hillary Clinton is going to say at some point. Yeah. Um, the, our, our real problem within our party, uh, I don't think is left or right or rural city or anything like that. It's really that circle of consultants that have a iron grip around the party hmm. uh, that uh, are based out of Washington that are making millions upon millions of dollars uh, off of our campaigns uh, and are not held responsible whether we win or we lose. Uh, and uh, they get massive contracts. They yeah. they uh, just shift around from job to job or firm to firm, and are are becoming fabulously wealthy. Uh, and 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 uh, our party is going down the tubes. And uh, I don't understand the power or why we allow uh, the power those individuals to have such power over our lives. Mm. Uh, but they do, and I I think that is unfortunate. Uh, that was uh, what really attracted me to, to Keith Ellison uh, and why I was so enthusiastic about supporting him because uh, I believe he ab- absolutely understood that and he was willing to take that on and stand up to them. Uh, that that uh, the people on the grassroots, somebody in somebody's, in the neighborhoods know a lot more about their neighbors than some guy who has, you know, or a woman who has completely disconnected to reality. You know, if you're, if you're making a couple million dollars a year and you're living in Washington and you're flying around, you got two or three, you know, vacation homes and, and you're living this sort of life, how, how can you realistically uh, believe that you're connected to the working class, or you're connected to the hopes and dreams of, of individuals? Um, I mean, they're, they're, they're posers, you know, they, 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 they act like that they are connected, but they, they truly are not. And, and, you know, I interact with some of those people and, sure. and I can tell you that they're not individuals that get my life, they get my family, mm. get, uh, my neighbors in Manchester. Um, you know, they just, uh, they, they're just out of touch. And you would think, looking at the money that, that goes to those people, those those men and women, had that been spent on, on actual grassroots stuff, on listening to people, on involving people, reaching out and doing stuff, as you say, on a 50-state uh, strategy mm-hmm. and, and reaching out that way. Much well, better. you know, uh, the people said, it was like, oh, how are you going to pay for, you know, this huge investment in state parties? They said, uh, you know, how are we going to raise all this additional money? I said, you don't have to raise additional money. Just cancel a few of those television ads, and you can have year-round people. Uh, and and we, we could actually have, uh, organ, you know, I called on us to have a permanent Democratic office in every congressional district in the country, uh, whether it's a deep blue, a deep red, doesn't matter, mm. and make that into a community center. Oh, yeah. uh, and put a South person in there and really work on it so that it'd be a hub of activity and, and progress uh, in, in parts of our movement, allow organizations to utilize the, the, the space uh, to organize around issues and causes. And uh, I think that we have to remind ourselves that uh, while uh, in reality our, our job is to elect Democrats, but, but the reason that we are electing Democrats is to pro- is to promote a progressive agenda. And it is about the progressive agenda. It's about making sure that we have social and, and economic justice and that you know, all, of the, all of the things that we have fought so hard for and continue to fight hard for every day, that's why we're Democrats. We're not sure. Democrats because we want to be part of some club. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I couldn't agree with you more. I, I know that this is true. I mean, I, I must say that I have been impressed. People do care very, very deeply about these issues. And since the drubbing we took at the top of the ticket in November uh, 2016, there have been meetings in this particular county of New Hampshire where normally in the past you'd have yeah, a few people showing up. 
every month there's like a hundred people and a lot of new people. There's some energy out there, and we have to tap into that energy. Tell what, what do you tell us about that energy that you see? You're out in the field as well. Well, it, it, it's happening across the country. Uh, it's it's very exciting here in New Hampshire. Um, you know, we go out. Uh, you know, I, I was out at a, a local a small town committee that uh, generally only gets about, you know, five, ten people. Right. Uh, right. Over 30 people showed up uh, last night, and there was no room, so we all had to stand because we're in this crowded small room because they, they just and didn't even anticipate they are going to have such a turnout. And I thought that was so exciting. It is terribly exciting, and, you know, it, the best organizer always is adversity. There's nothing like adversity to, to organize people. We got to, I mean, I'll tell you, on the Facebook discussions that I have, quite frankly, I find it somewhat frustrating. People are giving up on the party. Uh, There's this one person who said, I was a loyal registered Democrat for 34 years and I quit the party. I will remain independent and won't even think about rejoining the party unless I see real, honest change. The Democrats need to stop kissing corporate but uh, and stand up for the U.S., uh, and stand up for us, I should say. I agree with the Democratic Party platform. They need to start doing those things. If they want us back, they better start acting progressive. Being moderate, centrist, and corporate will get them big money donations. Being the party of the people and doing what the platform says will get them votes. And that's all in capital letters. Do they just want the money, or do they actually want to win? Are, is the party taking steps, do you think, to uh, you know stop the the gravy train of the big money, and perhaps use the model set out by Bernie to get funding. I mean, who knew? I remember, you know, years ago when the Democratic Leadership Council came into being in the early 90s, which I don't think exists anymore, the idea, correct me if I'm wrong, Ray, and I may well be, that, look, you need a ton of money. I mean, just ridiculous amounts of money. And as you said, it can be better spent, and I certainly agree with that. But the way to get the money was, at the time, from the big money people. Who knew that there'd be this uh, uh, Facebook kind of stuff and all this uh, social media where the average contribution was $27? What do you think about that as a model going uh, for the future? And uh, perhaps doing, I don't know what can be done about, you know, the going after the big money. You need all the money you can get. What are your thoughts on that, Raymond? Well, um, the the person who posts on Facebook um, that um, that statement was uh, mirrored by an individual that showed up at that town committee meeting I was at last night. I'm not surprised. And and I uh, said to him, "It's like give me six months, and and, and uh, don't because by leaving the party, you're giving into them." And you're letting them win. Yes. Um, and it, it's by staying and fighting that we're going to win this fight. Uh, and I said, so give me six months. If in six months I, I don't think that we're going to have fundamental change, then you know, do what what you need to do. But don't let let's let's see how this plays out in the coming months. Um, you know, the the DNC uh, for seven years uh, did not take any lobbyist money or hmm. uh, corporate donations. Uh, and then that was lifted um, in part uh, because the there was no longer funding public funding for the conventions. Uh, prior to 2016, the uh, federal government gave 50 million dollars to each um, political party to conduct their national conventions. 50 million dollars, and and that was mostly for security 
and those sorts of costs, which are, uh, as you know, extraordinarily high. Uh, and if you look at what the security, how tight the security had to be, because we had uh, the you know incumbent president, incumbent vice president, you had the nominee, former presidents, uh, and all, all all there, and with the with, you know with the threats that are going on nowadays oh, yeah. uh, with terrorism, you know the expenses were were big. So there were, a decision was made to lift that uh, for the convention. Um, so my feeling was like, well, we, we, we broke records by having that ban. And so the convention's over with the elections over with, uh, let's revert back to it. Now there was a resolution Mm -hmm. that was proposed, uh, and went to the resolutions committee of the DNC, uh, two weeks ago, and it was unanimously passed Hmm. to revert back to that ban unanimously. I think it was like 43 to zero, something like that. And so it came to the floor of the DNC with unanimous support of the resolutions committee. Uh, a gentleman from California uh, stood up and opposed it uh, and uh, asked to move to, to table it. Hmm. Um, and so the vote was a standing vote. Um, and I was um, surprised uh, that it was defeated. Um, I was surprised I was the only officer of the DNC to stand up uh, for oh. uh, the ban. And I was surprised to look out uh, across the room and see that it wasn't even a close vote. Um, huh. And that's, you know, I, I think that was pretty uh, disheartening. Now, yeah. one thing that Tom uh, Perez said throughout his candidacy for chair is that he didn't want to make that decision, but he wanted to empower the executive committee of the DNC, because that's one of the things that I had been talking about, that the uh, the, for the money, fundraising practices should be part of an open discussion. So um, I'm, I got elected to the executive committee. I'm, I'm, I'm still on the executive committee of the DNC. Uh, so we're going to have that conversation in the coming months, um, and hopefully we'll be able to move forward with that. If, if we're not, then if, if somebody believes that that is their cause, that that is more important you know, than the other causes, uh, then, then they have every right to do what they, they want to do. For me, personally, uh, supporting, you know, choice and LGBT rights and, uh, and all of those others uh, supersede uh, that. It, but that's me. Everyone has their own values. They have their own uh, decision-making process of, of what's of greatest importance to them. Well, I honestly believe that most, most people... Uh, I mean, it's a huge country, what, 310 million people here, uh, only about half vote, which is exceedingly frustrating. I guess people aren't uh, turned on by it, but that most people do favor these particular issues. But it's, it's you know, how you enact them, how you take the power and, and make it happen. As you were describing that, I mean, that is disappointing. And, and for people to hear that, I mean, they I, there's a lot of uh, mistrust, shall we say, of the DNC, the leadership, the the centralized party that, you know, are they beholden to the big money people, the big money lobbyists? And, and you know, what you just described sounds kind of like they still are. And people are thinking, oh, that's never going to change. They are just, you know, their corporate party, uh, just like the other party. There's nothing that can be done. Is there, you know, well, what, what you described is disappointing. You're right. But but Keith came within fifteen votes, fifteen votes off out of four hundred and forty seven members, hmm. fifteen votes of having radical change. The most it would have been probably the most profound change the DNC has had yeah. uh, in in a hundred years. I don't know. Hmm. Um, but what we what we were proposing was 
um, a real radical change on how the the governance of the DNC uh, would be operated. And, and to some people, that was scary because while they might not approve every aspect of it, such radical change, you know, is, is, is something that they were like, "Well, I'd rather go along with what I'm used to uh-huh. uh, than than try all this new stuff." But that yeah. is, we still came that close. Now, the good news is, the good news is, is that. Uh, immediately upon Tom's election, he uh, made a motion to have uh, Keith Ellison as the deputy chair. Uh, they have spoken every day since then. Really? They've been together multiple times. They're bound to embark. Uh, they did a Facebook Live uh, um, conversation with folks last uh, the evening uh, a couple nights ago. They uh, are going to go around the country uh, to a number of states together as a team. Um, so I, I, I see that all as very positive news. Oh, interesting. I'm glad to hear that because I've wondered, quite frankly, and I know other people have too. I, I was for Ellison after you dropped out, uh, and then, and, and I wasn't sure that by naming uh, uh, Ellison uh, deputy director, is that it? Uh, if that was chair. deputy chair, if that was merely window dressing, and and let's get right into it here about you know perhaps your motivation for running. I mean, you you live and breathe. Democratic politics. That's, I mean, you you were born to do that, no question about it. So tell us your motivation for running and why you eventually endorsed, endorsed Keith Ellison, and then we can talk about what happens next. Um, I decided to run uh, after uh, the horror of what happened in November. Um, the fact is, that Donald J. Trump should have never been elected president of the United States. Amen to that. And, dis- and decisions by the DNC alone, just the DNC, the decisions by the DNC alone and how uh, they are constructed for making decisions made that possible. And so I was angry. And because I had been part of the DNC, been part of the so-called leadership of the DNC um, for years now, and I kept telling them they need to stop spending all this money on television ads. They need to invest money in the grassroots. I brought forward the results of what we had done in New Hampshire, where we bucked the nation both in uh, 2014 and then, of course, in, in 2016 as well. Oh, yeah. You know, the last 10 years have been among the worst 10 years of the Democratic Party's history. We've lost more offices. We've got the fewest members of, of Congress and Senate and governors and legislative seats than, than we've had, you know, in, in uh, generations, yeah. if not 100 years. Yeah. Uh, on the flip side, in New Hampshire, this has been the greatest 10 years of the Democratic Party's history since its uh, creation in the 1830s. Mm. Um, we've won more offices in the last 10 years in the state of New Hampshire, very much a purple state. This is a competitive state. This is oh, not yeah. a state oh, where, yeah. you know, it's easy for a Democrat to win. Every every single race is a struggle and, and, a, and a challenge. That's for sure. And we've won 11 out of the last 13 statewide races. We've won all three of the presidential. We won five out of six in the gubernatorial. We have two-year terms in New Hampshire, as you know, and uh, we, we've won um, three out of, you know, four in the Senate, I think, I said, and, and nine out of 12 congressional, and we've elected more Democrats, the Executive Council, the State Senate, and the House combined uh, in a 10-year period than ever before. We've done that because we invest in the grassroots. If we had simply taken the same model and put that in 2015 and 2016 into place, uh, 
Hillary would have been elected president. Just, just that one thing alone would have been enough to 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 change it. So I was very frustrated that I didn't believe the people of Washington uh, within the D.C., uh, within the DNC, uh, understood that, was capable of understanding it, and I wanted to to get that message out. So by participating in 12 debates and by traveling around the country for four months, um, it was exciting to me that towards the end, uh, everybody was agreeing with me. And they were uh, actually using my lines in the debates, in the forums. And, nice. and to me, that was victory. Yeah. Um, and so uh, while we were getting closer and closer, and it looked more and more like I didn't uh, have enough to get over right. the victory line on my own, um, I really had, had uh, you get to know all of these candidates very well. I really, really um, like Keith Ellison as a person. I think that he uh, is a phenomenal uh, leader and really a true believer in grassroots organizing and uh, empowering people to to really take control of their their future and I thought that by joining together that we were going to make would make a great team because uh, what he has and in, in his great oratory skills and, and his ability to really uh, communicate well and then my more nuts and bolts background oh, together yeah. we made a, a, a terrific team and you know I I thought that we were going to be successful right up until the vote uh, and uh, and we 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 came very close. Yeah, it's it's somewhat inspiring and they're coming very close. I mean, it's it's better to win. You know, I've tried losing. I prefer winning, I have to say. Uh, but so you, you ended up uh, endorsing Keith Ellison. And after the DNC vote, uh, you were all over national TV standing right behind the victor, Tom Perez. That was kind of nice to see a friend there. Now, many, of course, traditional liberals such as myself were very much hoping Ellison would win. And, of course, we got introduced, really, to Keith Ellison by Bernie Sanders, who I was a delegate for at the convention. Uh, and, and, you know, that does help a lot. He motivates a lot of people. He certainly is uh, a Democratic leader. I want to talk more about that later on. I was wondering, I got the sense that there was kind of a whispering campaign against Ellison and his alleged anti-Semitism. And if so, was that false charge a factor in the final vote, do you think? It breaks my heart to think that that might, be po- that might be true, but I think that it might be. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was. I kept hearing that. And, you know, I feel like I criticize the government of Israel. I mean, there's America and there's Israel. I criticize America when I think, you know, I get to disagree, and I criticize Israel sometimes. Does that make me anti-Semitic for criticizing Israel? I don't think so. I mean, Keith Ellison is not Jewish. I am. He's Muslim. Maybe that was a factor, too. And I hate to think that was the case within the Democratic National Committee, but I just have a a feeling it may have been. And I, uh, you know, that power, it just, it bugs me a lot. One question I got from uh, uh, other people that I talked to here, can the Democrats create their own version of the Tea Party? And what would it have to do to be successful? And I got to tell you, I'm very much encouraged by these uh, town hall meetings that uh, <laughs> that the Tea Party did, what, 10 years or so ago, mm-hmm. that the members, the, the Democratic members of Congress had to face a giving them a taste of their own medicine. I get the sense that that stuff is really uh, getting some traction. What do you think about that as, as, you know, in terms of helping our future? I think that, that uh, 
in the tragedy of the Trump presidency, uh, the fact that there are literally dozens of organizations that are growing up in every state uh, that are uh, coming up from the grassroots uh, is phenomenal and it's exciting. And uh, at our um, New Hampshire State Committee meeting on the 25th, where our special guest is Keith Ellison, um, that uh, we're going to have a panel of a lot of the uh, organizers for the various progressive organizations that are out there with the grassroots because we really want people to participate in this because going right back to my point of a few minutes ago, this is about issues. This is about um, our values. And um, I I think that uh, whether people are uh, actively participating in their local town committee or if they're actively uh, doing uh, postcards or making sure. phone calls or doing visibilities, uh, everyone's doing something. Yes. And I think that's a terrific thing. Yeah, it's really helping a lot. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive, which has become a harder task since the election of Donald Trump. But we're doing it. Our guest today is, is Raymond Buckley, uh, one of the candidates for chair of the DNC uh, and uh, still chair of the uh, Democratic uh, party of New Hampshire doing a terrific job. Not that I'm biased or anything, but I am. Um, and, you know, I got to get back a little bit to these millennials. I couldn't, it was amazing to me. Who would have thought a, a white haired uh, guy from Burlington, Vermont, who grew up in Brooklyn, could gather the enthusiasm of millions of millennials? Th- that's the future of the party. And you know, a lot of these people, I think, are very, very disappointed now. They wonder, one of them wrote in, says, a uh, question that typifies many. The establishment Dems are not going to roll over and let progressives run the show. And it seems like that is exactly what happened with the election of Tom Perez here. How, how can we, it frustrates the heck out of me. And maybe this is worth going over a few times because this is the future. The, they got no, I mean, third party, what? You know, starting maybe people don't understand how intense it is to have a national political party. There is no third party. There's these databases that are huge and gathering the data. And, you know, you do the nuts and bolts stuff all the time. How can we, uh, you know, get these millennials to, to realize, you know, okay, I didn't get right what I want when I wanted it. We didn't get Bernie in 2016, who knows about 2020, but what's the message that can go out to them and and reassure them that, okay, the establishment kind of won this time, how can people not get disheartened again and keep up the strength and keep up the pressure? Well, I think you look at at the vote. Uh, The 447 members of the Democratic National Committee uh, represent the pinnacle of the establishment of the of the Democratic Party. Right. And the fact that Bernie Sanders' candidate, or you know Keith Ellison, uh, came within 15 votes of being elected uh, its chair, shows that there's been dramatic uh, progress uh, within the establishment. Uh, that said, it's happening all across the country. Uh, Bernie's uh, PAC or organization, uh, grassroots organization, uh, Our Revolution, is is uh, organizing local uh, dem- Democrats and activists uh, all across the, the country and, and uh, 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 getting elected to uh, state committees or local committees. Or, uh, and uh, so far, uh, a number of state party chairs have been have been have changed, and that uh, there are. Um, you know, Bernie supporters. The state of Washington is a perfect example of 
there was a, a guy who had been executive director of the Washington State Party for nine years, uh, was in his uh, second term uh, as chair of the Washington State Party, um, and uh, he was challenged uh, by uh, the progressive wing, um, and uh, he ended up receiving only a third of the vote of his state central committee. Uh, and that tells you the, the power of grassroots that's out there. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, I think that uh, it is um, a good thing for change. I think it's a, a good thing that uh, we c- keep alive uh, and bring in new people. Not everyone agrees across the country with that. Uh, there's a lot of people that have titles within the Democratic mm-hmm. Party, whether it's a local committee or county or state or national, that um, really see the, the their title as something that they've earned right. uh, and, and that it's uh, an honor to have it. And not that it's uh, the title shouldn't mean anything. It should be about the work that you're you're doing. Mm. Um, so, so true. It's uh, you know I think it's a, it's a good thing that uh, you've got you know people that are, are are challenging the establishment and running and you know not they're not successful every single time. But I think you know I, I think it's good. You know part of what's happened with the the DNC is that you know this was the first time in his in, in memory that we actually went to a ballot in the chairs race. Because uh, what even with Howard Dean, although it was a huge turnout, everyone dropped out before there was even any voting uh, that occurred. So uh, the, this whole process of actually voting was was something that uh, nobody that I know of that's on the DNC uh, had ever even ex- experienced before. Yeah, that is a really fascinating new thing, because I certainly, I mean, I've been in the party for a long, long time, and I certainly uh, have no memory of any kind of race, you know, publicized mm-hmm. race, you know, and, and enthusiasm and drama for the chair of DNC. So that's a good point. And quite frankly, one of the things that frustrates me is, you know, Americans are used to instant solutions. I want it now. And if it doesn't happen now, I give up. You know, it just it never works that way. You know, and the fact I that try that with my diets and it doesn't work. You know, I'll start a diet one day and go, okay, how come I haven't lost all the weight? That's, that's a joke. It's a joke, Bert. Yeah, I know you can't afford to lose anyway. Uh, but <laughs> but you know, we got to be in it for the long haul. History does right. take a little bit of time. It takes effort. And, uh, you know, just we have to keep at it. The Republicans kept at it. Look, I mean, let's face it. You know, in 1964, the Goldwater people, remember when we thought they were right wing? Huh. Mm-hmm. But they kept at it ever since then. And they didn't give up. They didn't say, well, we got our uh, butts kicked in 64, so let's just give mm-hmm. up. Uh-uh. There is no other mechanism that is out yep. there. The Democratic Party can be that mechanism if we, mm-hmm. the people, continue as we've done. Um, now, if history is any guide, which it usually is, 2018 should be a good year for Democrats, the party currently out of power. Uh, the focus must be on 2018. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what's your sense of how the congressional... I mean, Congress isn't as sexy. You know, It's not as like president. That's it. You know, some people come in and they just vote for president and they don't vote for anything else, which also frustrates me. What's your sense of how 2018 is going? I mean, I know it's early, but is the ground being laid for uh, taking back taking back Congress maybe and winning some Senate seats? Well, and you know, that, and there's a big difference between being a good year and a great year. Uh, and the difference is, mm-hmm. uh, do we have our act together? Uh, right. And if we go back to reinvesting into the grassroots, investing in every state, uh, the opportunities are going to show up late in the day. You know, uh, if you remember that 
uh, Senate race years ago, uh, and I think in in uh, 06 uh, in Virginia um, was not a targeted race, uh, but we ended up winning that because of a, a gaffe by the Republican uh, uh, senator. You know, in in the closing weeks, um, mm-hmm. we had the ground operation to take advantage of that and pull us over the victory line. Um, that's what we need to do in all of these states, no matter how strong these incumbent Republicans look to be, mm-hmm. um, uh, whether it's in governor's races or in Senate races. And we can't overlook the governor's races in 2018. Oh, sure. These are the folks that are going to be gov- sitting governors for, you know, all but uh, New Hampshire and Vermont have four-year terms. And the large uh, share of the governor's uh, offices are up in 2018. That means these people are going to be governor uh, after for redistricting after uh-huh. the, the census of 2020. Yes. So these governor's races are critically important to our future. And let's just, for a moment, focus on the redistricting thing. People focus on, you know, Citizens United and getting big money out of politics. But this redistricting stuff, this is huge. And, and people aren't paying that much attention to it. Tell us a little bit about the importance of the redistricting that changes in 2020. Um, well, the the Republicans had control uh, after the 2010 election uh, of uh, enough governors' races, uh, governors' offices, and legislative races, is that they were able to gerrymander the congressional districts in enough states mm. that, pre, when all things are equal, guarantees them a Republican majority. Yep. Uh, even when th- all things aren't equal, it still guarantees them. Mm. Uh, the fact is, more voters actually go in and vote for Democrats for Congress. Um, yes, uh, each cycle, yes. but because they have us uh, put into into these um, gerrymandered ghettos of of where uh, Democrats are all put together, and, and the same is true here in New Hampshire. They did that with our state senate races and our executive council yeah, races, where they, they they went out of the way. You know, the the reality is that more people in New Hampshire go and vote for Democrats for state senate, but they continue to have the majority. Because they they put towns like Portsmouth and in Durham in one con- yeah. in one uh, state senate district, yeah. uh, or you know, and it goes on and on like that. Whether it's legislative races, state senate, you know, uh, congressional, uh, all across the country. So the Republicans really wired themselves for success for the last decade, um, and it will take a massive effort uh, to to uh, gain back. Um, the majorities without straightening out those congressional districts and uh, legislative districts uh, across the country. But uh, what we can do that doesn't depend on, on redistricting is, is the governor's races. Yes. And if we, if we can get those governors in there that will veto bad uh, and make sure there's enough Democrats so that it does, the veto doesn't get overridden and that we're able to uh, at least have a level playing field. A level playing field, we win. Yes. Uh, and that's why Republicans invest so much money into gerrymandering the districts, into voter disenfranchisement. Uh, I mean, they, they, they try everything possible to get people uh, not to vote, right. whether it's making it harder to register, um, you know, it's pulling people off the vote, voting rolls arbitrarily, not having same-day registration, so you show up to vote and you find out you got pulled off from the, the, the registration rolls months ago because your name might be similar to somebody else in some other state. Yeah. It is is absolutely crazy. Or, or shutting down the amount of uh, polling locations, shutting the amount of hours, uh, shutting down the amount of workers that are in there processing the voters to make the lines as long as possible. There are some places in, in this country you have to drive two hours to get to your polling location. Hmm. That is that is ridiculous. Uh, we saw in phone jamming in 2002. Yes. Uh, and, you know, you were a victim of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it happened all across uh, the state. 
um, they will literally do anything to try anything. to stop people from voting. And that's what we need to do, because the people are with us. I mean, if you take a look at where average Americans stand on the issues, the fact is they're with us, but the Republicans have been so clever, and that's why, you know, okay, the president, you know, it's like a shiny new car. You know, there's also, we got to elect governors in 2018, extremely important, otherwise we're not going to be able to get to a president in 2020. And what the heck, I got to ask, okay, who's on the bench you know, people who are the up and comers for 2020? I would think, you know, there's obviously Elizabeth Warren, maybe Bernie Sanders again, Sherrod Brown, Tulsi Gabbard, Al Franken. Who else do you see on the horizon? I mean, it's ridiculously early, but people, you know, people do focus on that stuff. Oh, there, 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 there's just a lot of people I think that we're going to be seeing uh, in the coming months. Uh, half of them decide not to run, right. but then a whole other uh, group of people end up popping in at the last minute. Um, so, you know, I, I think what's important for uh, those of us to do is to allow everybody to have a shot at uh, uh, articulating what, uh, what they're for mm -hmm. uh, and, and not for anyone to endorse too early True. and uh, really uh, get to see who the, who's out there on the field. And, and there, you know, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of interest by a lot of those U.S. senators. Uh, we've kind of been bottlenecked now for a generation uh, between just a couple families, and uh, I think that it's important that, uh, you know, I, I hope we don't end up with 17 or 18 like the Republicans had last time, yeah, cause look but, um, but I do think that we are going to have a, a very big field. Uh, it should be fun. It's always fun. And just one final uh, uh, question, and again, it's getting, how do we communicate to the passionate millennials, the millions of them, that the DNC is not simply the party of Clinton? Um, well, I think that that is going to be, um, you know, the challenge that uh, uh, that Tom and uh, Tom Perez and yeah. and uh, and uh, Keith Ellison have, uh, and uh, you know that that's for them to to tackle, and uh, they need to uh, find ways of making sure that uh, that the the public out there understands that the doors are open uh, and that the party is open for embracing uh, new people, uh, people of differing uh, ideas and styles and how to organize and, uh, and uh, make sure that uh, the party is responsive and welcoming to everybody. Yeah, which I think we can do. All right, I got to sneak one more thing in. I've noticed on the mainstream media, the reporters always go straight for Bernie Sanders as the voice of the party. How is this phenomenon perceived in the inner circles of the national party? <laughs> Well, um, I haven't been part of the inner circle now for a couple of months. Once I decided to run, I was kind of, uh, uh -huh. you know, kicked to the curb a little. So, you know, I don't, I don't know, but I think that he's doing a fabulous job. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, I've been staying in touch with him, of course. And, um, I, I think that, uh, he has been, uh, very helpful in, uh, trying to, um, make sure that we stay focused, uh, and that we stay strong and that, uh, we have a very clear uh, and defiant message. Yes, we do. All right. And say you're talking right now to the millennial who came out for the first time in 2016, got fired up. Tell him or her why they shouldn't go third party, why they should stick with the Democratic Party. Well, I think that uh, we can. there's example after example throughout history uh, that uh, uh, doing a third party uh, uh, action uh, actually ends up helping the people that, that you uh, most despise. Uh, and that the, the party 
uh, actually is is not a set in stone organization. It's a very fluid operation that you can have significant influence over uh, if you want to put the time and the energy in, into doing that. And uh, the people that were the folks out on the streets uh, getting arrested in protests uh, one year, the next year are the people making the decisions within the party. Um, uh-huh. And I think that it's critically important uh, that, that folks understand that um, that it it is uh, an organization that once you figure out uh, how to maneuver into it, and it does, it's not that highly complicated. Once you get in there and, and you move up, uh, that uh, the potential for growth is is very significant. In in reality, uh, most state parties actually reward uh, young people uh, yes. that want to get involved. They they actually see that energy and, and are very excited by it. Yes, yes, it's great. It's great. We are. I'm convinced the party of the future, if we work at it. Raymond Buckley, thank you so much for giving us so much of your valuable time. And uh, we are uh, keeping democracy alive and uh, moving forward, making the most of this real opportunity that we have been handed here. Thank you so much, Ray Buckley. Thank you, Burke. And I hope you'll do what you can to get involved in the party. Thank you 